Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Now, without further ado, let me introduce our panellists and then I'll say a little bit about tonight's topic in a little bit more depth before we kick off. Um, First of all, we have uh, Professor John Rasko, who's on my far right, your far left. Um, John Rasko, AO, is a clinical hematologist, a pathologist and a scientist with a long track record in gene and stem therapy, in experimental hematology and in molecular biology. John has contributed to over 150 publications and he's the recipient of awards from the Royal uh, College of Pathologists, the Royal Australian College of Physicians and the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology in recognition of his commitment to excellence in medical research, including his appointment as an officer of the Order of Australia. Besides John is Dr. Wendy Lipworth, who is a bioethicist and a health scientist and an associate professor at Sydney Health Ethics at the University of Sydney. Wendy completed her medical degree at the University of New South Wales in 1999 and moved into academia in 2002. Wendy's also completed a Master of Science by research on biobanking ethics and she holds a PhD on the ethics of uh, journal peer review. Both her degrees were obtained here at the University of Sydney. Um, she also holds postdoctoral and career development fellowships on the ethics of emerging therapeutics. Uh, finally, and last but not least, is Professor Ian Kerridge, who's an internationally recognised scholar in bioethics and the philosophy of medicine. From 2003 to 15, Ian was director of the Centre for Values, Ethics, and Law in Medicine, known as Vellum, which is now known as Sydney Health Ethics at the University of Sydney. Uh, Ian is currently Professor of Bioethics and Medicine at Sydney Health Ethics, and is a haematologist and bone marrow transplant physician at Royal North Shore Hospital here in Sydney. He's also Chair of the Australian Bone Marrow Donor, Re- Don- Donor Registry uh, Ethics Committee. He's a board member of the Australian Association of Bioethics and Health Law, and a member of the New South Wales Clinical Ethics Advisory Group. So to the topic, just a few quick words to orient you. Uh, Cell research is a hot field of medical science, but one that's also prone to scandal and scientific fraud. While blood stem cell transplants have been saving the lives of people with leukaemia and other blood cancers for decades, hundreds of clinics, so-called, and websites across the world are claiming to offer cell therapies for a range of unregulated market. Um, But there's little evidence that these treatments work. Further, these dubious therapeutic claims aren't limited to dodgy websites preying on hopeful patients. There are in fact dozens of scientists and prominent research bodies that have been collared for scientific fraud by falsely claiming medical breakthroughs using stem cell science. Health consumers, how should you and I respond in the face of such promise? Uh, and uncertainty. Uh, and now I'm just going to ask uh, Ian and then Wendy and then John to say a little bit about um, their take on this topic tonight, just for a minute or two, and why they think this is an important topic to be talking about this evening. So if you would, Ian. Okay. Right. Um, I, oh, goodness, I hope that's not too bad. The, um, I suppose the first thing to say is, is um, why I'm here. Um, um, main reason is that I was invited to be here, but but it's um, 
but I've got three interests in this issue of stem cells. The first is that I work as a bone marrow transplant physician, so we transplant blood and bone marrow stem cells. It wasn't recognised exactly what they were when, when we all first started doing that, but it was subsequently discovered that we're using stem cells to provide enormous benefit for people. So I've got a, a particular interest in how that can contribute to people's lives and save lives and prolong lives and, and improve their their health and happiness. Um, the other things is that I've got a deep interest in the science of these cells because they do offer enormous promise, um, but equally they're surrounded by um, concerns about safety and their effectiveness, and, and we need to think about how we introduce those into practice over time and how we can gain the benefits of them without having too much of the harms. And the last thing is that I'm, I've got an interest in the ethics of, of stem cells. So, so in particular, it's, it's again how we think about them, how we do research on them, how we transform the way we do healthcare and use them, and, and again, how they function in, in a, a commercial market. And I think that's the kind of issue we'll get into tonight. Great, Wendy. Um, so, is that on? Yeah. Uh, yes. I um, come at it primarily from the third perspective that Ian was talking about, so the ethics and policy perspective. Um, I guess in my ethics work, I have two main areas of interest which intersect here, I think. One is the ethics of emerging therapeutics, and the other is looking at the various interests that shape and unfortunately sometimes distort biomedical research and policy making and practice. So I'm interested in looking at ways of balancing, on the one hand, the need for rigorous research, on the other hand, the need for clinical innovation, for new things to be discovered and tested, and at the same time, for patients to be protected. So what I'm grappling with is how we can balance all of those things when there are a lot of interests at play, so. Great, and John? I um, first started uh, being very interested in this field when I did a postdoctoral uh, research uh, uh, three years in Seattle, which is the birthplace of bone marrow transplantation, where the Nobel Prize for bone marrow transplantation was, was awarded to Donald Thomas. And since that time, I've been obsessed about the idea that we can use these cells not just for the day-to-day -day treatment of um, lymphomas, leukemias, and other malignant diseases, as well as a small number of other inherited disorders, but expand the portfolio of this technology to genetic diseases and other cancers uh, in a way that hasn't previously been um, successfully implemented in, in widespread medical practice. And so as a president of the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy, I have a commitment to the field and, and that's what I've been pursuing for 25 years. And so my interests are to balance um, the promise of these areas in regenerative medicine and genetic therapies for, for a number of different diseases with um, those people who would pray on individuals who are seeking uh, to meet uh, needs that haven't been fulfilled by modern medicine um, and yet uh, are preying on those individuals uh, with false hope, uh, which is something that I've, uh, I've pursued for uh, over a decade uh, in the field of unproven cell therapies, and which has a presidential task force uh, in the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy directed to specifically that topic, and that's why I'm here tonight. Great. Um, so we're looking for questions, and I might just kick off so that we're all on the same page to ask um, anyone on the panel to tell us what, what, it, what in fact are stem cells. So we're on the same page. John. That's, that, that falls on me. Okay. Um, so I thought uh, the best way to answer that would be to start with some fun facts. 
Um, so the fun facts are uh, that uh, Ian and I certainly as haematologists will, will well recite to you that each one of you right at this moment is making um, at least a million red blood cells a second, a second. And in order to create that miracle of cells, there's trillions of cells in your body and of those trillions of cells there are at least a hundred different types of cells. Now, set those fun facts aside and realise that every single one of us originated from a single cell. When a mummy loves a daddy, and they <laughs> come together, uh, a single cell, a fertilised egg. And that cell then divides, and divides and divides and divides, and gives rise to what we are right now. Um, in order to effect that amazing phenomenon, and to allow the possibility of regeneration and growth when injury occurs, we need a rare population of cells in our body um, that allows um, both for um, regeneration and also maintenance. For example, the production of a, mil a million red blood cells a second amongst other different types of cells. And in order for that to occur, uh, we have to have a small population in all of our tissues that facilitates that process, and that's what stem cells are in each one of our organs. Um, when all three of us uh, at various times went to medical school, we were taught that um, stem cells were not present in some tissues in the body. For example, the brain. I remember we, we were forced to answer multiple choice questions at the university <laughs> here uh, and said, no, 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 there are no stem cells in the brain. Well, now we know that there are, um, but these are rare cells, and in the bone marrow, they are present at about one in 100,000. Uh, cells present in the bone marrow and in other tissues at various numbers, but they're rare cells. And all stem cells have two main defining features. The first being this extraordinary phenomenon of self-replication, copying one, one cell uh, as, it, as it divides. Um, in other words, having divided, you need to make a copy of the original cell. And if you think about it for a moment, that has to be the case because cells can only divide into two. They don't divide into three, they don't divide into one and a half. One cell gives rise to two, four, eight, 16, and so on. In order for, therefore, to, to maintain a fixed number of stem cells, you can't have a stem cell giving rise to two stem cells, otherwise we become one big ball of stem cells. And similarly, you can't have it dividing into one and a half uh, or less than, uh, less than a single copy because then you would have a depletion over time of the number of stem cells in your body. So how do you maintain the number of stem cells in your body? It's by binary division where one cell gives rise to a copy of the original and the other one gives rise to the second feature of stem cells, which is multi-lineage potential, by which I mean one stem cell can give rise to different cell types. And the example that I gave at the very start is red blood cells. They're produced by the very same stem cells that give rise to the white blood cells, the platelets, and so on. Now, there are three main types of stem cells that we now know. The embryonic stem cells um, that are uh, related to a fertilized egg. The induced pluripotent stem cells, that is a technical trick that allows us to reprogram any cell in our body um, to become an embryonic stem cell-like cell. And finally, the ones that are the most commonly studied uh, cells and the ones that have been most commonly used in the clinic, the adult stem cells, and our favourite one is the blood stem cell because that's been used so widely over the last 50 years. Can I ask John a question? I'm, I'm still grappling with the mummy and daddy thing, John. <laughs> I've used that line before. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, no, it's, a, it's one of my favourites. No, I've, I've written it down. Yeah, when yeah, the mummy um, loves yeah, the daddy. Yes, yeah, yeah, so I'll go and 
talk to my partner about that this evening. <laughs> um, um, but, so, John, if, if stem cells are so great and, yep. they're, and they're busy making enormous numbers of cells, and, and you're right, I mean, I say this to, to patients in my clinic as well, and they're great facts, but if, if they're so good, why do we age? And, and why, do, why do we run down? What happens to our organs? Why, why aren't stem cells doing this? Or is there something else that stops them? Um, well, uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, we know... It's funny, I only learnt a new fun fact last sorry, week. Sorry, we're just going to... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we'll, the two of us will go back and we'll be... Okay, just talk amongst yourselves. Um, we, uh, I learnt a fun fact in the last week, uh, which is that there's a report, the first time I've ever heard of a report, of a child receiving a bone marrow transplant from an adult. And the child, 20, 30 years after receiving the bone marrow transplant from an adult has bone marrow failure. That, that's a game changer for me because Ian and I will have given vast numbers of lectures where we've said, isn't it extraordinary you can have an 80-year-old person who donates their bone marrow to a child of the age of 10 who's going to have another 80 years and they never wear out. We've taught that for years and years. Well, here's the first case where an example actually occurs where there seems to be uh, um, the tiring or the wearing out of those very stem cells. So that's a precedent. All the other cases have never shown that. If we do it in mice, if we do it in rodent mo models and transplant and transplant and transplant, serially, it's called, um, we can see the earliest suggestion of those cells tiring. And you know that uh, the answer is possibly shortening of telomeres, which is a kind of internal clock, uh, the fraying of the shoelaces of the chromosomes, if you think of that analogy, um, and other mechanisms, post both metabolic and mutation-based, that may lead to the ultimate degradation of the accuracy of those cells dividing. But I think we really don't know the answer to the question that you've posed me. Um, and why, and, and, it, and it raises a wonderful other question, which is how is it that species have given lifespans and others, you know, much shorter, much shorter? They're all stem cells, and, and yet mice live for perhaps a couple of years, we live for 80, uh, and all different species have different uh, age limits, and that's got to have something to do with the wearing out of tissues as well as um, the mutational load. So what I've just said is I don't know. <laughs> so uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand. We have a couple of mics in the room. We've got it. Just a question regarding the efficacy of stem cell treatments. Um, what are some of the disease states that we can treat with uh, stem cells currently, um, what are some of the challenges that, that are stopping us um, from progressing, and what are some of the inherent risks to using stem cell therapies? Absolutely. Look, I can start with, um, um, I can start with the effectiveness of stem cell therapies, if you want, and then open it up. So, so um, it depends a little on what type of stem cell you're talking about. So if, if we say this is that, is that what conditions is there for which embryonic stem cells work? Well, then we have very good evidence for nothing. We have preliminary data for different types of blindness, for example, um, but we have good data for no embryonic stem cell therapies working. If we talk about um, uh, things called induced pluripotent stem cells, again, there's some promising early data, but we don't have substantial clinical data, and by that I mean sufficient evidence to translate into, into patient populations, again, for, for induced pluripotent stem cell therapies. If we're talking about um, adult or um, 
whether it's taken from sort of adults or taken from umbilical cord blood and they're similar kind of, of stem cells. If we talk about that, then there's a range of conditions for which stem cell therapies work. And, and classically, they're used in the, the bone marrow transplant setting, uh, to a lesser extent skin, bone and eyes. But, but classically in the bone marrow transplant setting for diseases where you're trying to replace defective bone marrow or where you're trying to give treatment that would otherwise be incredibly toxic so and toxic to the bone marrow. So, so for example, if somebody has a defective immune system, you can replace their immune system by giving them you know, a, a new bone marrow with, with all of the, the immunological repertoire that comes with that. If somebody has a bone marrow cancer like a leukemia or a myeloma, as part of their treatment, you can give very high dose chemotherapy sometimes, or you can give a modified type of chemotherapy and just utilize differences between uh, the stem cells of a donor and, and the person's own body to, to actually again get rid of their cancer. Um, sometimes though, you just use them because you know they've got the types of capacities that John described, which is this amazing ability to make, um, you know, literally tens of kilos of white cells per week um, to allow somebody to recover after toxic chemotherapy or radiotherapy. So there's a range of conditions where there's very good evidence, but they're largely limited to adult or somatic stem cells. Would it be fair to say, Ian, that the therapies for which there's the best evidence are those where it's not actually the stem cells themselves that are being used to cure the disease or fix the problem. They're being used as a way of enabling another treatment like chemotherapy or radiotherapy to do its work and the person to survive that. Um, I know that's probably an oversimplification, but I'm just trying to get this idea across that they're two quite different ways of using these cells. Mm -hmm. So you, you can use blood cells to enable other treatments to take place, yep. or what, which is happening increasingly in the domain that John's interested in, the, the unproven stem cell therapies, there people are taking cells out of, say, fat or sometimes bone marrow, but confusingly, and then infusing that into the blood or injecting it into joints. And there, the stem cells are actually supposed to be doing the work of curing the disease. So is that a reasonable distinction to make? Uh, yes and no. Yeah. The, um, uh, um, and that's not menacing yeah, criticism no, no. at all. Yeah. That was a great clarification. So, um, so, so I, what Wendy's sort of starting to suggest is that there are, there's one way that you can do um, stem cell transplantation. So I'm just going to talk about stem cell transplantation primarily of blood stem cells. Um, one is called autologous from the Greek auto or self, um, where you literally will take somebody's stem cells, you'll put them in a fridge, right, and you'll add some chemicals that allow them to survive with freezing. You'll freeze them down to about minus 150. Now that they are in the fridge, right, so essentially somebody's bone marrow or immune system is in the fridge, it would mean that I can then give that person treatment that would be very effective against their cancer or whatever disease they may have, and it, and it doesn't matter anymore if it damages their stem cells or their bone marrow because I've got the replacement in the fridge. So in other words, what I can do is that I could give this high-dose chemotherapy at a dose that I know is going to be very good for destroying their, their multiple myeloma or their lymphoma or other conditions, and then after they've had that, we can thaw out some of their stem cells from the fridge, 
give them back to the person, which is just done as a blood transfusion, so it just infuses back in, and the cells, stem cells have small homing devices, if you want. They make their way back to the bone marrow and they start populating the bone marrow again. And, and we call that autologous transplant, or a, a better way to describe it is a thing called high-dose therapy with stem cell rescue, right? Because in that case, the, the stem cells are not doing anything special, they're just rescuing you from the results of the treatment that I've given. The other type of transplant is the thing called allogeneic, which just means a different species or a different individual. So this is where we take stem cells from another person or a donor. So this could be a, a family member. It could be an unrelated donor from, from one of 25 million donors around the world who are registered. So it's, the, it's the most extensive biorepository on the planet. So it's really quite extraordinary. So, so somebody could be found to be matched to somebody, so, so they are, they are immunologically or genetically matched, and then we would use their stem cells to do a range of things. And, and in that case, they're not um, just assisting, they're actually the things that are doing the work. So they will give a new immune system. They will have an effect against the person's disease. So they will actually be introduced and they will fight the person's disease. So the stem cells in that setting are actually doing important work in and of themselves. With the autologous setting, they're largely just used to support somebody having the primary treatment. So in that second situation, the stem cells are actively uh, working against the disease state. So this yes. might be um, cancer cells, for example, or do you, do you have to prime these cells? Is, is that like... That's a great question. Hmm. So, um, uh, um, historically, no. So um, the capacity for that is certainly coming, um, well and truly, and John might want to say a bit more about that. Um, so classically, no. So, so we all have a population of, of cells whose job it is to circulate around the body looking for cancers, right, and looking for abnormal things. And now, obviously, sometimes they don't do that brilliantly, right? So we do develop cancers that these cells are unable to detect, right? So sometimes they would look at a cell and they would say, that looks like my normal bone marrow, and they don't do anything about it. Alternatively, they would look at a developing cancer cell and they, they would think, okay, that doesn't look normal and therefore they would try to destroy it, but they just have insufficient ability to do it. So, so this is you know, at least some of the reasons why people will go on and develop cancers. So, so in other words, all of us naturally have a population of cells who do that. So we could take cells from a donor who arguably might be more effective at doing that than the cells of the person who's actually developed cancer because they developed cancer because there are these immune cells, these particular effector cells failed to recognise it or, or were unable to, to do something about it. So taking somebody else's, giving them some cells that have important immunological or genetic differences may be more effective, and we know that that's the case. Um, my question has been largely preempted by that. I was curious about um, putting into two baskets where stem cells work and where they are claimed to work but don't. So that question has been largely preempted. But also I'm, I'm curious about whether we can get a, a very basic explanation of how stem cells differentiate into all the other different types of cells in the body. Um, is it possible to give a, a very basic description of how that works? That is um, a question which obsesses many biologists and, and my lab has been very much involved in that question. And if I can, I can uh, decorate the question with a bit more detail, um, every cell in our body that has a nucleus has exactly the same DNA in it. 
exactly the same DNA in it. And yet, well, I've said, you know, there are several hundred different cell types in our body that we already know, and probably a lot more if we actually look even more closely. So it poses the question, how if there's the same genetic information in each one of those cells, do, do they cause themselves to be distinguished? And the answer is, um, in, a, in a very complex manner, they do that, um, uh, as you would expect, um, um, because they have to do it both in a pre-programmed manner, for example, during embryogenesis, where essentially we need to have a little baby at the end of nine months, so kind of there you go, um, but also uh, we need to be able to uh, identify those different functionalities in those cells during life and respond to external, not only external threats, but um, for example, if we injure ourselves during adult life, we expect those cells both to respond to the injury and then to stop responding to the injury once it's been repaired. Okay, so now uh, to answer the question, it is by selective... Um, uh, a selective expression of different parts of the genome, different parts of the chromosomes, the DNA, that allow different cells to have different features. And so at any given time, the differences between one cell, say a hair cell versus a big toe cell versus a blood cell and so on, is, is the difference between um, a 10% or so of the, of the expression of different genes. There are certain um, housekeeping genes, which all cells need to be turning over to produce energy, to maintain themselves. And then there are the specific genes that need to be expressed in order to cause it to, to have those different functions. And the interplay between um, cell-cell interactions and communication, saying, am I doing the right thing right now by growing, or should I slow right down? Should I become a red blood cell because you've just had a big bleed, or should I make more white cells because uh, you've got an infection, or so on and so forth? Um, all of those things require a massively complex interplay between signaling from, from without, internal signaling and homeostasis and maintenance of, of, of controls, uh, and um, uh, the complexity of that, um, uh, you know, I, I think that we have probably scratched the surface in our understanding of, of how that goes in, in, in detail. We, we know specific genes have particular master control functions and we have general ballpark understanding, but the systems biology, which is really where we're headed to understand the massive complexity of how all of the genes talk to one another and all the cells uh, respond to these external signals is, um, is really just beginning. Could I just jump yes, into yep. to that as well? The, I mean, the, the other thing that's worth pointing out is just from John's description in your question is, is that different stem cells will have different potency or different capacity to form a range of other cells so they can mature into different types of cells. So, so as John you know, started in the initial description, um, some cells are what we call totipotent, so they will form placenta and connective tissue in the entire embryo. Some will, will be what's called pluripotent, so they'll be able to form the entire embryo, so all of us. Um, some are then multipotent, so they will form all of the cells that belong to a particular type of tissue type. So, so bone marrow stem cells are multipotent, so in a normal setting they will form all of the cells that we need in our bone marrow, and, this, and, and massive numbers, in, in numbers that are, that are almost impossible to calculate. Um, and then there are some stem cells that will just send out like a, like a beacon, they'll just make a single cell type. So a cornea, for example, there's, there's a cell type, and this is called a unipotent stem cell. So the range of different 
different stem cells. The, the second thing to notice is, as John again described initially, he said, look, there are cells, stem cells in a whole range of different tissues, you know, including ones where we didn't think there, there were, you know, um, you know, muscle and heart and intestine and kidney and um, bone and brain and so forth, nose. Um, so a range of different stem cells are there. And the fact that they're there suggests that we could utilise them therapeutically in two different ways. So one is, is that we could actually transplant them, so we could take them from from one place, put them in another, or we could take them from a donor and put them in there, or we could take them from the person themselves and put them in there, or if they're already there, perhaps we can actually activate them. Mm. So if they're, if they're sitting there, and this is a, a very much an emergent area, and again, one that that's John's doing some work in and many others are interested in, because it's to say if the stem cell's there, maybe we don't need to transplant them at all, maybe we have to come up with some way, either with a drug or with a gene therapy, to just turn that stem cell on. So instead of somebody's brain just degenerating with dementia or Parkinson's disease, maybe the best stem cell to have is the one that belongs there, and if you can activate it, that might be a, an exciting way to think of using stem cells therapeutically. <laughs> Um, hello, um, I just have two questions. My first one is, um, so you've mentioned that um, we have discovered that there are stem cells in the brain. So um, what's like the current research for the application of stem cells for neurological, neurological diseases and what do you think is the potential for that? Um, so uh, the use of neuronal stem cells and glial stem cells is being actively pursued for a number of degenerative diseases. Uh, and that is very much in the research arena. Um, and there is some promise in those areas, and a number of companies, uh, both in Europe and the United States that I'm aware of, are developing those kind of technologies. But I also want to mention um, what is much more close to the clinic, which is the use of uh, blood stem cells uh, that is uh, Ian's specialty uh, in the case of multiple sclerosis, because that's an important question that often comes up in these kind of um, uh, discussions. And um, uh, that is in the kind of category one that Ian was talking about, wherein uh, you can uh, give uh, some kind of treatment, in this case uh, chemotherapy, in order to um, knock out the own body's immune system, which is clearly contributing to the progression of multiple sclerosis. We know that that's an immune attack in, on, on uh, uh, tissue in the brain. And um, that is really in one of the greyest of the grey zones between proven and unproven. It's an emerging uh, um, uh, technology, uh, transplantation in the case of multiple sclerosis, where there is some evidence in favour of it, uh, and the balance between the toxicity versus the benefit is currently under debate and exploration, and the current trials are underway, and there is some data to support its use, but it... Um, it worries me enormously that a number of people have taken themselves overseas, in particular to clinics in Russia, uh, where uh, this has been widely advertised on the internet and, and some people have, have, have uh, publicly said, well, I've taken myself over there and, and, and had this and it went just fine, thanks very much. Others have said it didn't work so well and uh, had no benefit. Um, but that is um, uh, one of the areas that are being actively pursued and, and one of our colleagues, John Moore, has a trial at St Vincent's Hospital uh, uh, to try and more rigorously explore whether or not that's going to work out. But um, that's a very active field of research. Um, giving you the details of some of the more experimental aspects I think would probably not be right for this venue, but I can assure you that that's a very active area of research. Mm. Can, um, yes. Just to, just to yep. jump in yeah, there as yeah. well. The, um, 
Stem cell therapies for brain diseases are, are really difficult you know, for a number of reasons. One, because I mean, brain diseases are, are, are often awful. They're, they're a key part of our personality and identity. And sometimes the therapies that we have aren't particularly good. So, so obviously there's a, there's a major interest in trying to come up with something that's going to be effective and that will actually restore our identity and our personality and our ability to communicate and do all of the things that are important to us. So, so there's a strong drive if you want to do this. And, and in a sense, sometimes that certainly drives um, therapies beyond the points of evidence, but it's also driven um, perhaps a little bit of scientific hubris. Um, I, I think John would probably agree that when, when the first trials were getting started of transplanting stem cells in patients with brain diseases is that there was a there was a, a genuine sort of hope and expectation, but the results have been, you know, profoundly disappointing. And and if we if we look back now, so I think scientifically we would say, gee, what's surprising about the fact that that's disappointing? Because mm. we, we had a very unsophisticated idea of stem cells and stem cells in the brain in particular. Is that the idea of if if dementia is a profound disease that causes widespread and and you know very significant injury to the brain, the idea of taking a beautiful flower of a stem cell, if you want, and, and putting it in a, in a, in a neurological desert, it, it does, doesn't make any sense. And it, and it never did make any sense, but it's taken us a period of time to actually revisit that concept. And, and now I think people are thinking much more sensibly about the use of stem cells in neurological conditions. Can I just add, I think unfortunately it's not just scientific hubris, I think it's translated into a degree of clinical hubris as well. And some, some people I think in very vulnerable, difficult situations are being told that there are effective stem cell therapies for neurological conditions where that's not actually the case. So. Yeah. Thank you for the discussion so far. Very fascinating on a, on a scientific level. Just um, referring to the title, we've heard a little bit of the bad, a little bit of the good. Can we turn toward the ugly? And I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm very, very curious about the ugly and I'm wondering whether we might start with the ethical issues. Wendy, what would you say would be Well, I think I was starting to allude to it just then. I think the ugly is when people who are in very vulnerable, desperate situations who have no other options are given the impression that there are effective therapies when, in fact, there is no such thing. Um, and I think the ugliness needs to be uh, tempered by the fact that we do want to encourage uh, not only rigorous basic scientific research and rigorous clinical trials, we do want to encourage doctors to innovate and to try things and not everybody can get onto trials even if those trials exist. So we want new things to be tested but there is a, a balance to be struck between um, trying new things and, for, and on the one hand and first finding out whether interventions are actually therapeutic on the other. So I think the ugliness comes in when we move too far in the direction of, well, this could potentially uh, theoretically work, so let's start charging people huge amounts of money um, to do it and let's advertise it and portray it as if it's an established therapy. I think that's a really nice way to think about it because the yeah ugliness is an extremity, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's there's you know there's vaguely unattractive and there's <laughs> ugly, right? You know, um, uh, you know, and and when 
when people, whether it's, whether it's patients wanting a therapy or clinicians using it or scientists, scientists being excited about it, because there's a degree of uncertainty and there's interesting scientific questions and there's interesting clinical questions and people are alert to all of the uncertainty, that, that's fine. You know, but, but where somebody knows that there's no evidence of something and exploits somebody's vulnerability to make a profit for themselves at substantial cost or risk to that person, that sounds pretty ugly to me. And that's, that is the kind of thing that we're seeing in this space. And that's problematic. You know, and, it's, and it's because it's on the edge of something. If it was clearly identifiable, really easy to pick, then, then it wouldn't be too much of an issue. But because we have space that science operates in and medicine operates in and disease happens in, which is uncertain and emergent and takes time, then there's the dangers of these things happening, and, and they do. And it's quite hard sometimes to pinpoint where unattractiveness is becoming ugliness. You know, the, yeah. the, um, there's always uncertainty in medicine. There's no practice that is completely 100% proven, for want of a better word, and the people who are use, or misusing these therapies will often allude to that sort of thing, and, they, and they're right on one hand, you know, we don't actually ever reach a point where we're 100% certain that a therapy is going to work and be safe for, for everybody in whom it's being used, so it's, it's, it's grey. Given that uncertainty, and maybe to play devil's advocate, why, uh, just to, to, to clarify, why shouldn't, for example, individual clinicians, doctors perhaps, be able to offer stem cell therapies <coughs> to patients whom they believe may benefit? Well, I think that's, that's a really excellent question. I think um, I first should say that there's a very compelling argument that they should. You know, some people would say if people are in, because people are in desperate situations, they've tried everything. Really, it's up to them in consultation with their clinician to decide both what they want to try and what risks they are, are or are not willing to assume. And I think that's intuitively um, a really compelling argument. And I could imagine, I'm fortunate that I haven't been in that situation, that I would feel very strongly that I should be able to try whatever I want if I was in such a situation. Um, and there are a number of different ways that people come at that argument. They talk about the need to be compassionate, to give people hope. Um, they talk about the need for just to allow markets to work, that if things are good, then people will continue to pay for them. If they aren't, then people will stop paying for them and everything will sort itself out. Um, they talk about the importance of autonomy and consent. Uh, sometimes people say, use the word, words like rights to to say people have a right to try uh, therapies. Um, and then there's also the argument that this is a private matter and really government needs to get out of the way. So there are a lot of really compelling values and, and arguments to be made for that. But when you start to take each of those apart, it becomes a little bit less clear. Um, so I won't go through each of those systematically, but I think, for example, when you start looking at the way medical markets work, you realise that they aren't working in the way that other consumer goods work. Um, governments intervene all the time. There are massive information asymmetries in these markets. Um, if you think about the argument that people should be able to make informed decisions, the question arises whether people are actually being properly informed. Um, and in fact, even whether the best intended doctors really understand the science and the nuances of the uncertainties. Um, 
And the question about whether governments should or shouldn't intervene, I think, is an interesting one. I think we have to remember that governments intervene basically in relation to all the goods we have access to. Um, and I think the understanding there is that you can't just rely on the manufacturers and the sellers of products to determine what is adequately safe and effective. So why should this be any different? Mm. I don't think any of those are knockdown arguments, but I just think they complexify the question. It's not as simple as saying people have a right to access whatever they choose. Wendy, can I can yeah. I attack Wendy? Would that be yeah. right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, uh, the, we um, planned this. <laughs> I mean, the, the way you're describing it, though, it sounds like it's just a, you know, a patient and a doctor locked in a room making decisions or about experimenting you know, on people. Mm. You know, oh, look, this sounds really interesting. Why don't we give this a try? Yes, that sounds excellent. Let's do that. Mm. Uh, so, so, but, it, but surely it's more than that. I mean, if, if I'm prescribing something now, I want to know that this actually works. I want to know that it's safe. And the way that you get that information is not from random sort of experiments involving a patient and a doctor last year or the week before or so forth. It, it's, it's, you know, data that's been generalised and it's been done properly through rigorous science. So, so surely, you know, although, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I love the idea of a doctor, you know, having amazing power to prescribe anything and talk to patients about anything. And I also like the idea that patients can be able to request and, and have access to lots of things. But there is, a, there is another obligation Definitely. here, isn't there, yeah, which there is, is to generate knowledge. Generating knowledge for current patients down the line and for future patients. I guess we're, and, and I absolutely agree with you, and I'm leaning more to, uh, towards um, being very cautious about ad hoc clinical innovation. I do think it should only happen in exceptional circumstances where it's impossible for a person, where there are trials being done, it's impossible for a person to get onto a trial, there are no other alternatives for that person, they're not paying huge amounts of money for an experimental intervention. So I think there are very, very strict conditions that need to be in place. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with you. I think there are, you know, and, and that at the same time, research should be happening to the greatest extent possible. Mm. So, so is what you're talking about is, is that how we make these decisions outside of a clinical trial or where a clinical trial is not possible yeah, or, yeah. or are these two things just happening contemporaneously all of the time or should they be? I think they probably always have to be because there'll always be people who can't, are not eligible for trials, who have exhausted all of their options and for them I think the argument about whether things are safe and effective to some degree, at least to them, might become irrelevant. So I think we do always need to have a, some mechanism of so-called compassionate access to therapies outside of trials. But I think that that should be the exception rather than the norm. Um, so I might come back to that because if those therapies or those physicians aren't available here in Australia, how is it that people are going to approach that kind of thing where there are offerings or promises being made offshore? We might come back to that. But um, up the back, we have a question. Yeah, a, a bit of ugliness you have mentioned here is death. Um, I was at a MS webinar the other day and 5% death rate with uh, some stem cells. So, yeah, it's, and it's not conclusive whether it actually helps. So yep. death is pretty ugly. Yes. Can, can I just respond to that? So, um, uh, and, and obviously I can't give you know, identifying details. So, so this was brought home to me very saliently in the last month. So um, 
I was asked to see um, a young woman with multiple sclerosis um, who didn't clearly fit into the clinical trial that's being run here in Australia. And this is an international multi-centre trial trying to determine whether stem cells and autologous stem cells work for um, multiple sclerosis. And didn't fit into the trial, but you know her MS was progressive. Right? And so she had a thing called primary progressive multiple sclerosis. So, so she felt that she wanted to do something um, and she could see that her outcome otherwise was not great. So she took herself off to, so she came and spoke to me. I said to her, look, I didn't think that there was good evidence to support um, this at all. Um, uh, and she, she asked me to look after her when she came back from having a stem cell transplant in Russia. Um, so I said I would, I was, even though I disagreed with the decision to do it and I thought it was um, risky and problematic that, it, you know, that I, I, I couldn't say that she was doing the wrong thing but I just wanted to make sure that she was informed. So I, but I would be very happy to look after her long term when she came back because there's a range of issues that, that happen to people who've had a transplant. Um, and she went to, to Russia and had the transplant and died as a consequence of, a, of an infection that complicated the transplant and, and the first there for a series of years. And, and that's a, a tragedy of un, you know, un, unmeasurable extent. You know, a young person with young family pursuing a treatment for which there's no good evidence out of clear desperation for wanting to do something. And it was a, an incredibly salient reminder of both the, the personal aspect of this, but, but also the genuine risks that happen in this space as well. Uh, I have a bit more of a practical question sort of for implementation. Initially, it was said that these cells are both rare and their population is constant. Uh, so that would kind of imply that if you get, uh, if you need a therapy, you need sort of uh, like a, a lot of, of, of transplant for, for a bone marrow transplant, for example, just in, in terms of matter. But later it was said that uh, you could sort of out of your own bone marrow, take a sample, put that on ice, then sort of nuke the rest um, through, through therapy and then replace that in. So where in that spectrum of I just need a tiny little bit or I basically need a one-to-one -one transplant, does it actually practically fall nowadays? It's both. Uh, the answer to your question is definitely both. Uh, so um, uh, any transplant using um, blood stem cells uh, will usually want to have a minimum number of cells. It turns out to be ballpark three million cells per kilogram uh, of these bone marrow stem cells um, that would be generally regarded as a safe number. More than that is oftentimes better, um, but that would be regarded as a safe number um, because you don't want anyone to fail. You don't want anyone uh, who receives your bone marrow transplant to get anything less than a, a full response. And it takes, you know, usually a few weeks for the cells to find their way to the bone marrow and start making a new blood system. But what we absolutely know, uh, particularly from uh, extensive studies done in rodents in particular, is that um, using uh, highly advanced uh, cell purification technologies, if we can actually identify the very stem cells themselves which have the maximum potency in the bone marrow, these one in 100,000 rare cells, that just one of those cells is capable of transplanting the entire blood forming system. So this is unbelievable. Right. Imagine if I said to you, okay, sorry, you've got a failed kidney, I'm going to put a single cell in your body and you're going to grow a new kidney. 
Okay? What, but what I just told you is exactly that for blood. Um, we know, no one's ever done it in humans because it would be risky, but in rodents and, and even in, in other organisms, uh, a single blood stem cell, which is a bona fide, long-term repopulating hemopoietic stem cell, so we call it technically, a single cell can be micro-manipulated, put into a, don into a recipient who has had its own uh, bone marrow er eradicated uh, by chemotherapy or radiotherapy, and that one cell transplants the whole blood-forming organ, the red cells, the white cells, the platelets, all of that, all of those cells can then be made from a single cell, showing the potency of these individual cells. So that does reconcile those two seemingly contrasting pieces of information that you mentioned. And um, I think it's still uh, a source of wonder um, that that's, that's possible. Uh, and it also um, speaks to other cell populations in the body um, that are uh, also capable of doing the same kind of thing. Uh, and uh, we can talk a bit more about that in terms of the immune therapies that I think Ian was making allusion to early when he was talking about autologous and allogeneic transplants. Astounding. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm not sure which part of the title this fits into. You might disagree <laughs> on that one, but um, I believe overseas there are organizations that um, offer the service of harvesting umbilical stem cells in particular as a, a way of future um, safeguarding or an insurance plan for the future for yourself. Mm. Cause is there a special efficacy of these particular stem cells? And what do you think of this service? Okay. The John, can I leap in here? And, yeah, um, please okay. be my guest. Okay. Uh, before you answer, whether it is the ugly or the unattractive, you may, may or may not know, Ian's known as the George Clooney of bone marrow transplantations. <laughs> so, you know, take that as read. Please, sir. Am I real? Wow. Hmm. Um, my fee has just gone up substantially. We can talk about that after. <laughs> That's a lie, by the way. The, um, uh, look, it's a great question. So, so, so this is umbilical cord blood banking. So for those who remember Crowded House, right, a big part of the, the proceeds from one of Crowded House's sort of farewell concerts were used to support the cord blood stem cell bank in, in Sydney. So, so there are a range of cord blood banks around the world used primarily to support what we do, which is bone marrow transplant. And they've been brilliant because they provide fairly immature or flexible types of stem cells that can be used to transplant across different immunological barriers. So they, they perform a fabulous social function. Um, so, so primarily as donor stem cells for people who need a transplant at that particular time. Now, that's public stem cell banks. That's very different to commercial stem cell banks that have been set up pr principally on the same sort of basis as insurance. So just as you have you know, life insurance or income insurance, you can store your cord blood stem cells from your baby um, either for them when they grow up um, and say to you that you know they want 20 bucks plus their stem cells or the you know the car keys plus their stem cells whatever um, so you can store it for them or you can actually in theory use it for yourself 
right? So, so that's obviously not completely matched because it's you know has at least you know parts of the genetics of your partner, um, but that's been the rationale, and and that's been incredibly heavily sold. So if you go to many um, maternity units around the country, you'll get a little brochure that's that's you know got a a, a very forlorn photograph of of a woman walking through a, a, a rosy arbor with a little kid, and it'll say something like. Um, if you had the possibility to save your child's life, would you say no? Right? And you know, apart from us, those of us who genuinely don't like our children, right, um, um, uh, most people would, of course, say, "Of course, I would." And if you show this to somebody who's in the latter stages of pregnancy, you know, they've got contractions. Would you like to save the life of your baby? What are you going to say? Right? So everybody says this. So in fact, the rates of growth in commercial or private stem cell, cord stem cell banks are substantially higher than the donation to public banks. And for people like me, that's a complete travesty mm. right? for a number of reasons. One, because it, you can see that I'm fired up. Right? Um, uh, one, because it does detract from a public resource, and it's an important public resource. But the other is that it's based fundamentally on an incredibly low likelihood of benefit. So, so the, the likelihood of using the stem cells that you'll pay $500 to $1,000 a year to maintain lifelong um, of ever being used are somewhere between 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 250,000. Right? So, you know, and these are stem cells that you can actually get for yourself when you need them anyway. Right? So either I could, for example, I could store my baby's cord blood and say, I'm going to put this aside for you for when you develop you know, leukemia in the future. Right? And then there's 50, 60 years of, of putting in all of this money. Right? Then at the time that they need stem cells, if they need autologous stem cells, I can collect them at that point. Right? Which is all Medicare rebated. I can get them at that point. Or if I need them from a donor, I can enter their genetics onto a donor registry, search, you know, now find donor, find one in 26 or 25 million wonderful people around the planet who've, who've indicated a willingness to be donor, and find them stem cells then, which arguably will be better than storing their own. So, so, so yes, it's out there. Yes, it's been an incredibly successful business model. Do I think it's problematic? I think it's massively problematic. Apologies to all of those people who have invested in the private stem cell. <laughs> I have a multi-part question in relation to offshore stem cell therapy. The panel has commented that desperate patients often go overseas for stem cell therapy, and you had the very sad story about your Australian patient. Um, in addition to the research and clinical intervention in Australia, which countries in the world would you say are leading in stem cell therapy? Can you specifically comment on stem cell therapy developments in China? And is there any international regulation um, in relation to stem cell therapy? Or in other words, how do people know when they see these advertisements on the internet, when they do their own research, whether or not a particular clinic is in fact legitimate or worthwhile going to? I think, John, you're the president of the International yeah. Society. <laughs> Falls on me. Um, I get the hard ones. Uh, great questions. Um, there traditionally has been the view that Australians have taken themselves offshore under the heading of medical tourism in order to avail themselves of unproven cell therapies or clinics that have advertised online. 
So a few years ago, um, a bunch of medical students and a colleague in Japan and myself decided to do a, a massive uh, audit of online direct-to-consumer marketing of these stem cell clinics worldwide, English-speaking, and ask the question, uh, where, are the, where are they and, and who are they targeting and what diseases are they, are they claiming to cure? And uh, as you might expect, we got a massive uh, number of hits and then we collated the data and um, overwhelmingly the country with the largest number of online offerings of direct-to-consumer marketing of stem cells was the United States of America. And that was shocking because, you know, 10 years ago you might have asked, well, where, where, would, where would people be going? And you go, oh, well, the Philippines or, you know, Thailand or Russia, Ukraine. No, no, the old US of A was the biggest uh, centre. And in particular, Florida and California were the states we could actually, you know, uh, specifically look at where these uh, uh, clinics were offering their services. And then I asked the students to go back and change the calculation by, by actually changing it from not the um, number of clinics uh, per country, but the number of clinics per capita of each country. And Australia had the highest number of direct-to-consumer marketing clinics in the world. Australia, because of uh, our small numbers and size. So um, there is a major problem uh, with direct-to-consumer marketing, and it is... I would suggest near impossible for a punter to distinguish what is a legitimate clinic and an illegitimate clinic based on a very careful assessment of some of these uh, websites that, that pop up. They get bunged down back by regulators and then they pop up somewhere. It's like whack-a-mole. Uh, you bang it down and then another <laughs> one comes up and then another. So you're chopping them down and, and it really is just like that. Um, so I, uh, we have... Um, uh, really explored this in enormous detail and learnt about some of the many tricks that these clinics use to uh, afford themselves what we call tokens of legitimacy. How does a, has an unproven clinic impersonate a proven um, uh, medical therapy? And there are a, no, a large number of ways that they use these tricks. And I don't need to deal t detail them. We publish them in a number of journals. You can search on my name and, and, and find uh, publications that detail these tokens of legitimacy. But uh, that's just one way that these clinics seek to um, trick uh, uh, people with unmet medical needs to um, pay very well-earned funds and waste time. This is an opportunity cost, travelling overseas, sometimes for months, and uh, spending their time when they might have otherwise um, afforded themselves at least of uh, uh, local therapies or indeed spent the money on something that might have given them pleasure rather than wasting the money on something that is unproven and very, very unlikely to give them any benefit. So I can't give you specific answers to the question, well, how do I know that clinic in Thailand is a good one? But I would simply say the following, which is, um, Australia is rightly proud of the best medical uh, system in the world. Not only that, we have a social welfare system second to none. If you are a citizen, you should and could expect nothing less than the best that the world has to offer in terms of proven medical therapies uh, for um, diseases. Now, unfortunately, there are a number of diseases with unmet medical needs, and it is those people who will then be seeking uh, opportunities beyond that which current medicine offers. And 
you know, the only word there is compassion. The only word there is not paternalistic, no, you can't seek those alternatives, but it is go there with your eyes open. Don't go there thinking that uh, this is anything more than um, offering you hope um, with potentially n no real clear evidence of, uh, of, of uh, efficacy or, or therapeutic benefit. The, the National Stem Cell Centre does have uh, some FAQs yep. which, which gives you some, some clues and they say here are some clues to look for when you're looking at um, stem cell clinics to, to get an idea as to whether they're bogus or not. So, so the use of testimonials and, yeah. and photographs, you know, um, absolutely certain claims to efficacy. You know, this works yeah. constantly. You know, 100% of people. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So, so we've so, got all these tokens of legitimacy. Yeah, yeah, so there's a series of things that, and I'd I recommend that you go and have a look at those websites because they give some nice guides. There's also... Um, downloadable patient guides to understanding and making choices about stem cells as well. So they, 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 they at least give you an idea, but John's point about the difficulty of, of navigating that is absolutely true. i just add to that that this idea that is often put out there by people who want to sell these interventions, I won't call them therapies, is this idea that somehow people are missing out. That's mm. a phrase that's mm. used all mm. the time. Mm. And it really, that understandably upsets people and entices people to look for what they might be missing out on. But when, as John said, if you actually stop and think about it, it it's people are missing out certainly on being experimented on in an ad hoc way that will never you know, generate any useful information. But they're not, no one is missing out on therapies. And I would consider a therapy to be something for which there is at least some systematic evidence of, of efficacy. Yeah. Yeah, we published a paper uh, last year, um, and I, I'm still kind of shocked that the journal had published a journal called Nature, a very good journal, um, accepted the title. The title of the paper was Show Drugs Work Before Selling Them. That was the title of the paper published in one of the world's leading journals, Show Drugs Work Before the Selling Them. I would have thought that would be such a yeah. stupid proposition. It's a revelation. Uh, you know, yeah. it's like, duh. Um, but uh, the, this great medical uh, scientific journal published mm. it, and the reason was because of something that um, both Ian and Wendy were talking about earlier, which is this uh, movement, actually, called the Right to Try Movement. And uh, many of you may know that uh, America has enacted legislation uh, in the United States called the Right to Try legislation, passed by Congress and enacted. It was a bit watered down from what it was previously uh, proposed as, but nonetheless, it is that proposition that, that, that Wendy and, and Ian debated about um, who are we to tell anybody uh, that they can't try anything that they want. And uh, it's, it sounds on the surface a reasonable proposition, and it, and it you know, is, is that great idea of anti-paternalism and, you know, ingenuity and innovation and, you know, moving things forward by crashing or crashing through, and, and, and that's a kind of an American ideal. Um, but it doesn't translate into, into reality very, very well. Um, because another paper um, that we published uh, similarly, um, and, and one that, that's uh, also the subject of another, another paper that we're developing, is um, uh, we paraphrase the right to try uh, movement by another title, which is um, the right to sell unproven drugs to dying children. That's how we paraphrase the right to try, because that's how it actually translates into practice. Uh, and, and so as shocking as that sounds, that's what I personally believe. Um, 
uh, that that uh, proposition uh, has um, mm. has created, and it's all because of a fundamental philosophical difference uh, between how we should um, judge whether medicines work or not. And and if you'll allow me just a, a few seconds to elaborate, there is a proposition in the in, in particular in some think tanks uh, in the United States that uh, argue that we don't need to do clinical trials anymore to show whether something works, a medicine works or not. We can let um, a higher authority than medical scientists and clinicians decide, and that higher authority, that brain that kind of surrounds the planet is called the market. And that brain, uh, the market, is a judge of all things good. Um, uh, the good, uh, not the bad and the ugly. Uh, and, and it works the following way. Well, uh, if you sell a drug and people keep buying it, clearly it works. Um, if it's a failure in the market, well, too bad, uh, that, um, uh, then that clearly didn't work. Which, which on the surface, that sounds logical, doesn't it? I mean, you know, if it works, people will keep buying it. It, the problem is that it forgets about a third category of drugs, not good ones that work, which you're going to sell, not bad ones that you're not going to sell, but there's a third category, and it's actually the largest category, but we don't remember it. It's things that are futile. Think about it. The biggest tablets that you and I buy, the biggest capsules that you and I buy, are the bloody vitamins which we then pee back to Bondi Junction uh, in the beach uh, every day of our lives. And that's a trillion dollar industry worldwide, completely unproven, and yet we do it because we see the advertising, we, we like to um, uh, you know, maintain those kind of uh, beliefs that we are doing something for ourselves. Um, but that, that, that futile, that futile classification of drugs where they may not do an enormous amount of harm, but they certainly don't do any benefit, is an enormous classification, and we will never, ever, ever be able to distinguish a futile medicine, be it a cell therapy or a gene therapy or a drug, from something that works or doesn't work unless we do clinical trials. Because once the horse is bolted, there'll, there'll always be a placebo effect. There will always be a population of people who are absolutely convinced that a sugar pill gave them a cure for cancer and you'll never convince them otherwise, and they'll yell at politicians, and politicians will then say, well, that sugar pill really does work, and I have to therefore fund it. And so, yeah, and so I think that the funding issue is another layer that, that gets introduced, and maybe at the moment, at least with unproven stem cell therapies, it's the consumer who's paying for it, yep. but there's also, with, along with movements like Right to Try, is demands for faster, not only faster, or overriding registration altogether, but also getting interventions paid for by insurers, in our case by the taxpayer, through the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So it's costing. These things do have costs to society as yes. well. Surely there's also the category of the, of the actively harmful drugs too, where we don't subject things to clinical trial and do phase one and find out if there's toxicity. Yep. In a cowboy open marketplace, surely there's drugs that can do people harm too. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the idea that that a, that a market is an adequate way of resolving all of our questions about health, which is ultimately a moral domain, where, where our idea is to provide benefit to people, to provide care to people, to not harm people, to provide justice. I mean, the notion that a market, which doesn't have that degree of morality there, is the way to resolve that is ridiculous. But there is a movement at the moment which is arguing that patients should be thought of as consumers and doctors should be thought of as providers, and there's 
I have a lot of problems with that for exactly these reasons, but you will hear people saying that we should do away with all this paternalism, this idea of doctors or regulators making decisions on behalf of patients. As I understand it, there is some move for the FDA to move that way under the current yeah. administration, is that right? What was the question? The FDA is starting to be watered down in that way under the mm. Trump oh, administration. Well, very much so. The current administration down. Would, would, <laughs> would love the market to, to dominate uh, and there have been significant moves in that direction. Mm. Having said that, the FDA's Scott Gottlieb's main commissioner is um, a champion of rigorous assessment and as standing his ground and, and standing up against the administration in a very rigorous way. And so the fact is that he has been more active in shutting down unproven clinics in the United States of America over the last couple of years than ever before. And uh, Australia is also rightly proud to have uh, yeah. modified its laws in the last few months after many, many years of us lobbying them to close the so-called loophole that has allowed these unproven cell clinics to proliferate in Australia. I can repeat the question and then Ian can answer it. Um, the first question was, what's the current position on culturing stem cells? And the second question was, do they cross the blood-brain barrier? So yeah. you're pretty good at listening. For in, in terms of transplantation, so at the moment, so culturing stem cells or expansion of stem cells is still not proven to be efficacious to increase the, the likelihood of transplantation working. Um, classically, they, the idea is that they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, there's, there's some debate about that and that there's questions as to whether there needs to be disruption in blood-brain barrier for stem cells to cross. So, so most of the stem cells that are, that are there are neurological stem cells that were already there in the first place. The benefits, if, so if there's the question is in relation to transplantation for neurological conditions, it's, it's that the, um, uh, the, the transplantation itself or the stem cells are, are again not doing the work. It's the, the immune suppression that's, that's um, uh, providing a benefit for, for example, like we said before, a patient with multiple sclerosis, the idea if that's an autoimmune condition, then it's the immunological suppression of the chemotherapy or immunotherapy before stem cells that is the important thing, not any movement of stem cells across the blood-brain barrier. Hi there. Um, I'm just trying to reconcile the whack-a-mole concept, which I find really funny, with the right-to-try movement. So. Do we have these doctors that are just popping up here, there and everywhere, peddling their therapies and what does that mean for real doctors and how does, like, we just seem, keep, sorry, seem to keep having these therapies that apparently don't work, but what's happening to their medical licences if they're actively harming the population? That's a, very, that's that's a really a, good that's question. That's a cracker. Of a... Uh, we do, there are mechanisms in place in theory to regulate those practices. So we have medical boards, we have the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Regulatory Agency. Um, but, and we also have uh, the ACCC, which supposedly oversees the claims that are made in advertisements and so on. But the problem with those systems is, is that they rely on people making complaints. Um, and that happens very rarely. And I think it would happen particularly rarely in this situation where people are sick, vulnerable, they've spent tens of thousands of dollars in, in desperate hope of something working, the chances of them actually making a complaint is incredibly mm. low. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah, they are. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you've just spent $80,000 because you can get a, a, um, a package of, of autologous stem cell transplantation over a period of time, so you have a, you have a series of mesenchymal, sorry, not autologous, stem, mesenchymal stem cell infusions. It can be done over months, so you've, you've spent a huge amount of money on this thing. You've got no rebate for it. You've put all of your hopes and dreams into this thing. You've you know, taken away the inheritance from your children, all sorts of things. Right? And then it doesn't seem to provide you a benefit, but you were convinced that it was going to, in part because of the dialogue you'd had with the clinician. You know, how easy is it to then turn around and say, I was a complete idiot. Right? I've, I've blown all of my money, I've blown all of your money, I've wasted all of this period of time, and now I'm going to complain. And you it's know, also a very difficult thing to do. It's also difficult to prove wrongdoing Absolutely. in that situation. These yeah. are, you talk about the real doctors, but these are still doctors. They've given themselves yeah. the label stem cell doctor, which doesn't actually exist, but that's sometimes what they call themselves. Yeah. And unless they actually are negligent in their practice, they haven't actually done anything wrong. Doctors are allowed to innovate. They're allowed to prescribe medicines that haven't been approved by regulators. They're allowed to use stem cells until, pre until recently mm. without any regulation at all. So you actually have to show that they, they were negligent, that another doctor would say, I would, that, you know, that is not a proper medical practice, mm. which is difficult to do. Well, I mean, as Wendy's describing, though, so we actually, there's a raft of um, legislative and regulatory um, um, controls over practice. Some of them are through the TGA that controls the actual cells themselves, so it's called the biologicals framework. Some control clinical practice, so the professional codes, the health practitioner regulation agency, the um, HCCC, the um, consumer legislation and civil law in relation to, to negligence and liability. So there's a range of things that in theory should be doing absolutely the work that you're wanting it to do. But those agencies need to be able to act, they need to have the power to, they need to have the resources to, and, and they need to, to essentially have the courage to. And, and I think for a lot of us, in, in each of those cases, that's been lacking. And that's partly because we do want doctors to be able to innovate, so we don't want to crack down mm. to the extent that doctors will only follow guidelines and, and never stray from them. So that's part of the reason. It's partly resources yeah. and yeah. lack of courage, but it's also because medicine is not black and white in terms of whether you're doing what you, know, what you would consider to be standard practice or what you'd consider to be innovative. Well, and I think you do want to create the space where patients and, and family members can also have discussions about, you know, is there something that's not clearly proven that, yes. that we could try? Is there something that, that's open to me? Is, is there something that's, you know, that, that may be on the edges of, of clear practice that I can do because of the situation I'm in? So you still want that space to be available and accessible, but equally you don't want it to be taken advantage of. Questions are coming thick and fast. We've got not a lot of time. So, yes. With stem cell therapy for osteoarthritis, are there known risks besides losing your money? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, there are uh, opportunity uh, costs uh, wherein um, uh, you are uh, potentially uh, having an intervention that uh, 
uh, may offer you no benefit, whereas you could have had nothing at all and still have the same benefit. We know that uh, many of the trials uh, are not properly controlled, as Ian has said, but uh, if you just inject saline, for example, it, you know, a lot of studies have shown you get the same benefit. Um, but moreover, um, we're sticking needles into people mm. and uh, that means that there's a risk of infection and we know that there's a risk of bleeding and many of you would be aware of the case of Sheila Drysdale uh, who died as a consequence of unproven cell therapies for exactly that kind of thing. In her case, it was infusing cells for Alzheimer's disease but it was the same cells uh, that, that are being used and she bled to death uh, because of unwise um, unwise uh, medical practice. Uh, but that was in the extraction of the cells through the liposuction. Exactly. So you have to get the cells out before you put them back. Yeah. So, th so all stages of the process yeah. have risks. Have risks. Uh, and so obviously there's risks of infection at the, same, at the same time. And so all of those things are married together, especially when they're not proven, um, places the balance of evidence in, against pursuing it until such time as enough clinical data is... Uh, accrued to support their use. So it's not just uh, a financial impost. And the other thing to make, uh, make clear is it's not also just the individual's financial commitment because a lot of people um, use crowdfunding and a lot of people ask family members and neighbours and so on. I, you know, I've heard of these magic cells, uh, you know, mum needs it for her Alzheimer's disease, please. And, and then it leads to that bizarre situation where people feel guilty having been made fools of and they don't want to talk about it and so we don't hear about it and one of our colleagues Megan Muncie down in, in, in Melbourne at uh, Monash uh, basically collects data because most people hide in the shadows after they've uh, done these things because they just don't feel uh, like they want to advertise their foolishness in a lot of cases so I, I, I think that it's not just uh, a cost out of the pocket it's uh, a lot more than that John's point about the the this um, sorry about that the um, John John's mentioned this woman called Sheila Drysdale. So she died, or the coronial inquest was in 2016, and and as John and Wendy described, so she was en enrolled to have mesenchymal stem cell infusions done for dementia. She was because she was demented. She was enrolled by her husband who'd had them previously done for osteoarthritis, and and she she bled to death as as, as Wendy described, from the liposuction. So, so people do bleed to death after liposuction. It happens about one in 150,000 times, but it, but it happens, it's a well-recognised complication, and that's, it's bad, right? But, you know, it becomes tragic if you're having that for something that has no basis at all and no evidence. You know, th then it goes from just a, you know, a, a very unfortunate, rare event to something that's, you know, completely reprehensible. Hmm. Oh, hello. My question is more of a public health, public health context question. You know, we've both all agreed that patients are vulnerable. Um, we've got people trying to take advantage of um, uh, the, the, their vulnerability in a financial way. Um, uh, we all talk about uh, peer-reviewed publications that, that show evidence, but the general population don't have access to those articles, they don't understand them, they're very hard to um, communicate in a simple and straightforward way. Um, if you draw a parallel perhaps with vaccination where there's the anti-vaxxers who get a lot of attention and um, convince the public of behaving in a certain way, um, you know, there's been the production through um, uh, NHMRC of, uh, you know, mythbusters, myth if you like. Um, is there a strategy that um, is being planned for both the Australian population and pe pe perhaps the global population that fights the, um, 
the, the, the web, I guess the, the, the people going to Dr Google and then taking that as their advice. Um, so firstly, is there an Australian strategy and a global strategy and how do you best equip our primary health care providers, our GPs, to answer questions because, Ian, you're lucky that patient came to you and said, will you care for me? Now, it's very sad that they died, but if they came back, at least they're in the care of a specialist who knows what to do. So thank you. So, George um, Clooney's working on this, right? The, yeah, exactly. The, um, so, so look, there, there are some things being done. I mean, John's, you know, John's been pursuing the TGA relentlessly hmm. for a series of years in this, and there has been some movement in the, in the legislative space. But, but there, there is also some work done to address exactly the kinds of concerns that you have. So, so the, the National Stem Cell Centre, the NHMRC, the College of Physicians, all of them in different ways have produced resources, both for doctors who have got no idea, um, uh, and members of the public as well, that, that say something about what stem cells are, what their biology is, what their potential is, which which is still exciting, despite all of our sort of caveats and concerns, um, and also what to watch for. Um, so, so they're and they're downloadable from various sites and so forth, and and they're a good start. The education, but um, the the commercial interest is profound. The the marketers are incredibly sophisticated. So, so I think it's going to take you know a combination of legislation, of people making complaints, of prosecutions and of respectful education of public health providers and of GPs and specialists and the public as well to address these concerns. But there is certainly steps being made in all of those domains. Susie, I wanted to uh, agree with Ian, but also elaborate a little bit, um, because you also mentioned uh, not only national initiatives which exist within the Australian Stem Cell Centre, but uh, internationally, um, uh, we really are trying very, very hard to raise awareness um, uh, through unregulated jurisdictions as well as regulated jurisdictions, and that's a major issue. Um, so uh, my society, the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy, has got patient uh, sheets that, that, that can be downloaded, and these basically tell patients um, what, how they can resource themselves with information. And that's been translated now into nine different languages, um, and that's uh, available online. You can just go to ISCT. Uh, our, our, our website uh, and download those things. So that's a public uh, public service. The World Bone Marrow Transplant uh, Organisation is uh, currently uh, promulgating uh, advisory uh, paperwork and, and, and sheets for, for members of the public to download. But it goes much further than that. And so I want to flip uh, the answer to your question because all of the, what I've just said and really what Ian's just said is predictable. I mean, you do expect people like us to want to do exactly what you're saying. Um, but you know what? Uh, we talked about this in a recent session in, in Florence at ISCT uh, that I just came back from a couple of days ago. And um, it's my firm belief that uh, if you do, uh, if you, any one of you now pull out your, your phones and just do a Google search for stem cell clinic, you will get the top six hits and you just need to drive a few kilometres and you'll find where you can get your stem cells tomorrow uh, if you're interested. Um, a lot of people will read that and go, wow, that's great, I'll do it. And they'll spend their five grand or whatever it is. Mm. I truly believe that despite all the information that's available online, most people with unmet needs or many people with unmet needs will still seek a conspiracy theory or an alternative that they will allow them to make an excuse that, oh, well, I'll just give it a go and find out a bit more about these. Um, even though deep down they know that it's probably garbage, it offers them hope 
that is not being offered by Western medicine. And I think mm. that's a mm. fundamentally important point that we often ignore. Yeah. That if we're not offering hope uh, in, in Western medicine, just say, oh, we'll go and take a vitamin C, nah, um, then, then it's, it's not answering the fundamental question that people are seeking, which is, why haven't I got anything to help me with yep. this, this life-threatening disorder or my family member, my child? And I think that's, that's really important to keep mm. in mind. Time has beaten us. I'm sorry that there are more questions than answers and time available. So um, thank you for participating in tonight's conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you put your hands together for the panel. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.